Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Baha Jirbi. I'm a PhD researcher in gender and rural contentious politics at the Geneva Graduate Institute. And I'm really thrilled to have with me today Dr. Eugene Chung of the University of California, Berkeley, to discuss her new book, Sweet Deal, Better Landscape, Gender Politics and Liminality in Tanzania's Near Enclosures. Published in 2023 by Cornell University Press and is part of the Cornell series on land, new perspectives on territory, development, and environment, the book is the product of years of sustained ethnographic engagement with the diverse rural women and women of a coastal town in Tanzania as they navigated a seemingly endless condition of liminality or a dispossession in limbo as a result of an unfinished massive land transfer deal for commercial sugarcane production. Eugene examines how the incremental and at times invisible processes of change and the violence of unknowing can have profound implications for the rural social fabric, from gendered relations to notions of identity and belonging, particularly for those standing on the peripheries of late agrarian capitalism. The book is, of course, much more than this. But before we get into it, Eugene, thank you so much for joining and congratulations on your wonderful book. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Uh, So I'm a broadly trained sociologist and geographer who foregrounds issues of gender, power, justice, and access and understanding socio-environmental problems and their effects on rural landscapes, livelihoods, and life ways in Africa, particularly Tanzania. And as you said, I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of California at Berkeley. I hold a joint appointment in the Energy and Resources Group and the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management. And prior to joining Berkeley, I was an assistant professor in the Graduate School of Geography at Clark University. And before that, I completed my PhD in Development Sociology at Cornell University and an MPhil in Development Studies at the University of Cambridge. Thank you, Eugene. Um, I want to start us off, maybe paradoxically, with the very last sentence of your book, which I thought was really poignant and and a powerful note to end on. You write, no enclosures are ever um, complete. Can you walk us through what this means within the context of the eco-energy land deal in Tanzania, and maybe against processes of Tanzanian and broadly African agrarian change? Yeah, um, maybe to answer that, it might be useful for listeners to um, have some context about um, the particular land deal that I examine in Tanzania. So I began um, investigating this particular land deal in coastal Tanzania around 20. I first heard about it in 2009, but I began, you know, preliminary investigations around it in 2012 um, and 2013. And every time I went back, went to the field, um, it was as if the project was to start like right away. Um, There have been plans for displacing people and resettling people and and then displacement seemed very imminent. Like the land had already been uh, transferred to the company, it had exchanged hands. And so enclosure had somewhat kind of happened but people haven't been fully dispossessed yet. Um, But every time I returned a year after year, people were still on the land, you know, they hadn't been fully dispossessed yet. And that really got me into thinking, okay, so what are the ways in which uh, 
what are the forces that are prohibiting this land deal from moving forward? Because as scholars in agrarian studies, we have this understanding that, okay, the, the classic agrarian question being, um, how does, how and in what ways capital takes hold of agriculture in the countryside? And it's not actually a very simple process. And it got me thinking about the reverse question. So how and in what, what ways um, is capital enabled to hold and seize the countryside? Um, and that got me into looking into the, the more historical relations in which these land deals come into being and how the role of history and the legacies of prior land enclosures and the complexities and ambiguities in land tenure, especially that um, prohibit certain kinds of land deals from moving forward. Um, so that kind of is what the last sentence of the book, I guess, is referring to in terms of no land deal has ever been complete since the colonial times to the present. And so it's almost no surprise that this land deal did not go through the way it did. Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that I really loved about the book is this constant tension between people's understanding of the land deal um, and the contested notion of it being unfinished. Mm -hmm. um, you say that defining the land deal as a quote-unquote failure would not do proper justice to the fact that the people on the ground, the people that were most touched by it, did not think of uh, of it or experience it in that manner, even um, if the the state discourse and the media were sort of quick to, to categorize it um, as such. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I thought a lot about that because a lot of times in the land grabbing literatures, um, the land matrix, which is a global um, observatory that collects all this data on transnational land deals since 2000s, and they've tended to categorize deals into concluded deals, intended land deals, meaning deals that are under negotiation, or failed land, just kind of three categories to understand contemporary land deals. and. I mean, as you said, as I talk about in the book, um, the media and outsiders and observers and critics were quite quick to talk about this particular land deal as a failure. Um, and I was kind of brushing up against this classification that external outsider observers were saying and the people's lived realities on the ground. And, you know, despite the project's ostensible failure, people were still living under the shadow of the project, under the surveillance of paramilitary forces the company and the district government had deployed to secure the project site boundaries. People were still restricted from growing permanent crops or making improvements on the land and to their homes. Uh, the experience, their crops being uprooted, houses being burned, farm tools being stolen and destroyed, and reports of physical violence and confrontation with the paramilitary abounded. And so, and living in this militarized, masculinized, repressive, in-between landscape, people, individuals, and families were forced to renegotiate their survival strategies, again, despite the, the news of projects of sensible failure. Um, so, and the concept that I talk about in the book, Limit really came from the ways that people were describing their state of being and their condition. Um, as I talk about in the book, people were describing their situation with phrases like, you know, living um, with one foot in, one foot out, you know, being stuck in between brackets and parentheses or being squeezed in between. This kind of in-betweenness, embodied sense of in-betweenness very much pervasive throughout the entirety of my fieldwork. Um, and I wanted to 
honor those experiences and, and be able to explain, uh, not to categorize this as a failure per se, but what happens if we think about it in terms of liminality, some kind of a living embodied experience of being in between where life is characterized by, you know, both profound and quotidian uncertainty. And um, and I, I do believe that, you know, choosing to think with liminality is really more than a matter of semantics or theory building, because it is really reflective of what people were experiencing and and uh, conveying to me through the course of research. And I think also with you know, the word failure and describing land use as failure can be quite effective in terms of, you know, giving this polemical punch to you know, global land deals. But at the same time, there's a sense of uh, absence or obsolescence, collapse or closure that this word failure implies. Whereas working with liminality, you know, with this Latin root meaning threshold, leaves room for openness, ambiguity, contingency, surprise, and possibility of politics. So it was very much of a heuristic concept that helped guide my um, my research and the writing of the book itself. That's wonderful. And uh, one of the many things that resonated with me uh, while I was reading the book, and as you're describing it now, is that oftentimes um, these ambiguous processes um, are dismissed as as noise and not really um, sort of dignified or given the analytical weight um, that they that they should be given. Um, I really um, what you said earlier about your interlocutors describing their their condition as living in, in parentheses that's such a powerful um, description of 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 their situation and it brings me back to this idea and what you're describing now as as this in situ um, displacement, this experience of slow violence in which people remain in place, but their access to resources are diminished and their their sense of, of self and belonging is um, is, uh, is 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 increasing uh, with massive repercussions on, on their livelihoods. What I'm really curious about um, is how these um, forms of violence intersect with the more brute uh, force of, of paramilitary violence. And I understand from the book that the very idea of, of paramilitary violence is itself um, contested uh, in the eyes of the state and, and local um, government. Um, but of course, in the testimonies of, of, of the victims of the violence, it's very much um, a, a reality and it's a scar that they uh, continue living with. Uh, so I am wondering how these two forms of violence or various forms of violence are, are in dialogue with one another. Yeah, I mean, the, the as you say, the talk about um, in one of the chapters, you know, it, it, even the physical violence that the paramilitary um, perpetrated, it, it was also really not... Um, I would say publicized, you know, unless you're there, you know, in the villages, you don't hear about them. If you're in, you know, a town, you would never hear about it um, because the paramilitary, they had their camps like deep into kind of the bushes and they had their checkpoints. So unless you're actually living, you know, in the area, you probably would not have heard about it. Um, and, but for the people, it was like a very big point of contention. You know, they were living in fear, you know, as I talk about in one of the um, early pages and through a photo narrative of a woman, you know, she 
takes a photograph of a pile of fuel wood that she collected. And in, in describing the photo, she says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to go into the woods and cut fuel wood because I'm afraid of being harassed and intimidated by the paramilitary. Um, and, you know, it's it's not physical violence, but the sense of intimidation and fear was quite pervasive, um, especially for women who have to go into the woods and get these, you know, material necessities for their livelihoods. But, you know, even even everyday little things, you know, like uprooting people's crops, you know, and so people would devise different kind of strategies against these but, um, everyday forms of violence, but in ways that would not be as effective as you think, you know. So, for instance, people might try to um, subvert the paramilitary surveillance and monitoring of rooting up crops by, you know, doing the farming at night, you know, in a guerrilla farming kind of style. But, you know, as nature does its work, you know, you know, crops, when you sow a seed, it, it, it pops up, you know, so you can't actually, you know, actually escape the kind of violence that you might expect from the paramilitary. Um, and the other kinds of little, you know, invisible acts of violence, and, and then in this case, I think it really also manifests through the ways in which people had to negotiate their household um, relations. So as the both physical and intimidation of these threats of violence increase, you know, many households had to negotiate, okay, who's going to stay behind and who's going to go? Um, because of the masculinized landscape became quite um, dangerous for women and children to stay. Um, there were also fears that some women might, you know, be forced to um, sell their bodies to the paramilitary. And this fear is that, you know, families wouldn't want that for their girls and children. And so the women and the girls and children would leave, whereas the men would stay. And that also creates different kinds of social gender relations on the ground. Um, I don't know if that gets at your, your question no, it it does, and and it's actually a, an excellent um, segue into uh, what is essentially the bulk of your book. So you've spoken about these everyday acts of violence, but uh, there is a counter to that: is that there are everyday acts of of resistance, so to speak, um, from the more quotidian to the overt uh, and contentious, and even uh, the legal. Um, and and one of your conclusions is that. A lot of these uh, social hierarchies, including uh, gender, were uh, not only at the root of the uh, sort of outcome heterogeneity in terms of um, what kind of grassroots actions were mobilized against the land transfer, but also um, how the possibilities for what you call this coalition building between different actors, the men, the women, uh, the peasants, the village elders, how these possibilities were ultimately hindered uh, by a lot of these um, intersecting and often conflicting um, identities in, in one space. Um, I'm wondering what other linkages might we draw, if any, between the more these more mundane um, acts of, of of resistance, if we can call them that, and the more public and, and confrontational mobilizations um, that took place? Were there any meaningful synergies that we can um, tease out, and did they build uh, on each other somehow? 
Yeah, so in the book, I, um, as you also outlined, I talk about more mundane um, forms of resistance, including ordinary speech acts to a little bit more illicit uh, resistance um, and uh, more kind of or semi-organized forms of um, political mobilization, as well as uh, litigation. And they're also not mutually exclusive, um, but they are quite different in the sense that those who get to participate in those particular kinds of forms of resistance varied. Um, so the very ordinary forms of resistance, which I talk about the ordinary acts, it, it is through talk that people really express their frustration and confusion and um, so, you know, subversions to the land that they have. And so that came often through forms of humor and rumor, which I talk about in chapter five. Um, and those with very few um, few fallback options, they would you know choose to do things like you know sewing at night, which I call the guerrilla and, and farming. But especially for women, um, when a lot of their restrictions on uh, land use practices, um, they often turned to things like beer brewing or alcohol, alcohol brewing or charcoal making, um, which were also forbidden in the field, but they they still managed to to eke out a living through that survival strategy. And uh, the other form of political organizing, and and it was about you know small group of more or less educated um, young male uh, villagers who try to mobilize different groups um, on the ground, but with somewhat limited success. Uh, and then the last bit is about um, the legal action taken by male uh, elites, um, what I call the elites among the poor that try to engage in legal battle against the company and the state. And, you know, there are synergies in between, but I did notice, you know, as I talked about those who gets to participate in these really is limited by who you are and who you are in your position in your particular setting. So for instance, the litigation, uh, I talk about there are three main plaintiffs. There are three male elders. There are also uh, village leaders. There are also political elites. There are husbands. You know, there are fathers. There are these local patriarchal figures, and and they also had the effect of excluding their own wives and other legitimate land users from the land. The, the litigation, which really impacted the scope and extent to which people could really assert their rights and claims. And even also those, the semi-political mobilization that the young, educated villagers did, it, I mean, not to dismiss the work that they did, but they also were limited in their membership. And so they called themselves a local activist, but they also didn't include the local elders who knew about you know, the long history of settlements there. Um, they didn't include a lot of the women because they thought that they were not good comrades or not trustworthy comrades. And so in, in both cases in particular, it really limited the extent of meaningful, really inclusive collective action because they were also... Uh, um, manifesting their particular interests and position and social location that they had themselves embodied. And yeah, so to summarize that this um, response here, um, there were some synergy, they are not mutually exclusive per se. So for instance, those who engage in, you know, political organizing were also engaged in everyday forms of, you know, speech acts through talking about and, and expressing their frustrations through humor and rumor, but it didn't really go the other way around. Those were able to those were able to do more formal and public facing forms of resistance were 
privileged in some ways um, based as a result of their social location, social positions. I see. Thank you. I, um, of course, a lot of uh, the narrative in the, in the book is, is wonderfully interwoven with glimpses of, of uh, Tanzanian rural life that you convey so vibrantly. And one of the examples that I really like, um, the example of the women that are brewing beer and how this activity um, is is implicated in a lot of complicated uh, moral politics. Um, can you walk us through um, these questions of morality and uh, what kind of implications they had on rural life and also in terms of uh, the kind of positions people assumed um, in in sort of contesting the the land deal. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of questions of morality. I mean, I mean the example you gave of the women beer brewers, um, it's interesting because, you know, women have been brewing beer for a very long time. And if you look back to the colonial times, um, women who escaped, so-called escaped their, you know, rural countryside and came to urban areas and started making their own income through beer brewing or prostitution or whatever, were deemed immoral and undesirable by the British colonial state and they were penal. And so this idea that this kind of, um, you know, survival strategy for women, everyday survival strategy for women were often portrayed as immoral. And that was kind of the similarly uh, prohibitive act um, in this particular uh, setting here in Bagamoy and coastal Tanzania, too. And there are also questions around morality in terms of like, what is land supposed to serve? Um, and what does it mean to be a rural citizen? What is a moral right of the state to leave the rural residents, peasants, um, you know, without land, with unprotected from uh, state protection? And oftentimes when people, you know, referred to their access to land, especially around the political mobilizing, there's a lot of sense that, okay, in the socialist period, you know, land meant agrarian citizenship, like your citizenship is expressed through your possession of land and land access use. And so people have this certain idea that as, it's interesting the way connecting ideas about morality and connecting it to kind of the colonial understanding and socialist understanding and how those understandings also permeate into the present and and um, reappear and often uh, manifest in different slightly different ways than it hadn't in the past. Yeah, alongside the the beer brewers, there is also another category of of women that exists on the fringes of so-called orthodox womanhood and these are the what you call the women without men who are ultimately mm -hmm. uh, counted can you tell mm -hmm. us what that means within the context of uh, of the land deal sure yeah so in the early days of this land deal one of the first planning exercises that the government and the company um, did was to count how many people on their land, how many, you know, um, what how, what does their property look like, what does their house look like, and that is done so as to figure out how much compensation people, you know, deserve, so to speak. Um, but, you know, the way that the process was done, um, so the process was initiated by the Ministry of Lands, and so they had these re regional and district land valuers and surveyors come and accompanied by um, an external consultants to support this survey process. 
And the way this process is done and historically been done is with an understanding that those who own the land are the men of the household. So male head of household is, you know, the, the breadwinner, the one who controls ownership over land. And so when the surveyors came, they um, they have multiple forms that 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 give out to people and they initially went to all the male heads of households because it was assumed that they were the ones controlling the land, they would benefit from compensation. Um, but there were cases where there are women without men, meaning women who are widowed, those who are divorced or single mothers who never married. And for these households, they these women were able to get these papers documenting um, their uh, entitlements to compensation um, as you know, land as their own. And so these women were able to get these paperwork and documentation that married women didn't. Um, and so, of course, these paperwork that, that these forms they received were by no means, they were not land titles per se, but they, in the in the form that you see, if you, in the form they sign, there's a part where they have to sign their name and the, the place signature is called landowner. So they signed the form as landowners. And so this form was the only form of documentation people had about their land. And so they held on to it quite dearly because it was somewhat of a proof of documented evidentiary proof that, that they belong to the land. And so it's it works in a kind of um, contradictory ways that, you know, the, the government started to start this process of serving with the expectation that men are the, the landowners, but there were cases where women were recorded as landowners, um, subverting the kind of understanding of the family, the head of the family, men of the family, as being the, the, um, the decision maker and the landowner. Uh, Eugene, I really want to commend you on your impressive ethnographic fieldwork. The level of, of care and commitment it, um, it went into it really shines through um, the pages of the book. And I think it's something all ethnographers and aspiring ethnographers should, should aspire towards, uh, myself included. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you negotiated uh, a lot of the access that was indispensable to, um, to, to forming this book? Um, and in the book, you discuss how your different identities and positionalities shaped the spaces that you were able to access and hailing from your background, you're able to penetrate uh, what you call masculine coded spaces uh, among other advantages. Um, and the very rich narrative that you include in the book hints at the trust bonds that you were uh, able to establish with your research participants. Can you tell us a little bit about the processes of uh, relationship building uh, and relationship forming that were, um, I assume, undoubtedly integral to, to bringing this book into, into fruition? Yeah, thank you for that question and, and for your kind words about the ethnography. Um, so I should say, uh, before I began research uh, for this book, um, before my career in academia, I worked as a development practitioner um, at an international development and geopolitical action aid. And this was around 2010. And it was at a time when the organization, um, along with many other social movements around the world, were trying to, to devise you know, campaigns against global land grabbing. And so I had... 
been active in that space and I had colleagues in Action Aid Tanzania working on these issues. And so the very first time I came um, to this particular field site and this particular site where this land was supposed to be situated, my initial entry was through my colleagues um, at Action Aid Tanzania. And uh, it wasn't an area that Action Aid Tanzania had initially worked, um, but they had visited the site before to collect some baseline information towards the global campaigning. Um, and so that was my initial entry. Um, but in, in general, in the area of the study, there are not that many uh, NGOs or you know civil society organizations or outsiders coming in and out. I mean, there are outsiders coming in and out as kind of investors or tourists, but not as researchers per se. Um, but having uh, kind of that activist background and having colleagues on the ground to give me initial access was very helpful. Um, but that but the initial access was only limited to kind of the southern part of the so-called field site. And so over the years, I had to spend a lot of time getting to know the village leaders and elders and um, key informants and be able to, to spend time with them and to be able to build trust and requested them to refer me, introduce me to others and across the project site. So the project site is like 20, over 20,000 hectares and many different settlements. And so it really took time to build relationship in one site, one kind of settlement, and use that relations that I've built and the connections that I've made there to build relationship with the next. And so it was a very much of a multi-year process. And I think I think also the tenacity and kind of the persistence of returning every time and staying um, for a long period of time. And so the the work involved 18 months of field work. And so staying there, staying put and coming back. And I think that made, uh, I think that played a big role in making fee people feel comfortable that I'm not just popping in and out, but I'm staying and trying to learn about their life. I'm there weeding with them, I'm cooking with them and things that they um, probably didn't expect an outsider um, coming in to do with them. That's that's really wonderful. And um, as I said, uh, it really shows through how you you weave your analysis um, with uh, the wonderful, though, uh, most of the time painful glimpses of, of Tanzania rural life. Um, the ethnographic vignettes, uh, both textual and visual, uh, are really powerful. And, and you discuss how the sharing of photos and maps came in handy for facilitating discussions and, and interviews. Um, can us readers also interpret this and the other participatory methods that you've leveraged as uh, also a mechanism of knowledge co-production between your research participants and and yourself, perhaps in the same way as they, as you say, were also co-producers of the landscape uh, through their everyday acts of, of presence? Yeah, absolutely. I think the... The participatory methods that I use, you know, including participatory photography, also known as photo voice or oral history workshops or seasonal calendars, all the things that I did, it, they're basically the holders of knowledge, right? I'm there, there to understand them and document them and to, you know, to preserve them in the ways that it is useful for them and also for people understanding the context in which these land deals unfold. Um, so they're much, very much, um, again, the holders of knowledge, and I was there to, to really um, to understand their their thought process and their perspectives and experiences. And the 
I initially got interested in in, in photo voice. Um, also, prior to my career in academia, I worked at an organization uh, called Photo Voice, which was essentially using photography as a means for positive social change, so trying to understand perspectives and experiences of more marginalized communities through visual medium. And so I had worked with um, participatory photography with groups like the visually impaired or hard of hearing um, or sexually assaulted youth in the UK, but also with street children in Afghanistan and the Dalits um, in India. So I've had prior experience in the power of photography and photo narratives and storytelling. And I wanted to really bring that here, but initially it wasn't part of my research toolkit because not every context is amenable to using this kind of method. And But it soon became quite clear that it might be necessary. So in my initial interviews, people were always eager to um, take me to show things. So we would do kind of sit down interviews in their house but they would say, oh, let's let's go. Let me show you where this old mango tree, where this old school used to be. So there was a lot of visual element that was embedded in the kind of sedentary interviews I used to do. And so it was one of the ways that I realized, okay, maybe there might be something important to be gained by having a visual element. And the process of this participatory photography can go in many different ways. It has a life of its own. And you know, was using digital cameras. Um, prior, previous in my other projects, I've used um, uh, disposable cameras where you were limited by set of set of frames. But the the beauty, I guess, the fun of digital camera is that you can take how many photos. So people took a lot of photographs, um, hundreds, and uh, but we had to kind of whittle down to set select a couple of thirty initially. Like, what are the most meaningful photos for you? And a single photo would lead to so many stories. Um, so I had a photograph of um, oh, a man taking a photo of uh, a, a tree that was carved um, in the in the form of a human figure into this tree. And I didn't know what he was going to say about the photo. I didn't know the context of the photo. And he was saying that that photo is really important to him because it indicates the tree that marks this, the boundary of his farm. And people, when they come to see his farm, they know that land is his because of this you know, tree carving. Um, and then he went on to talk about the, when the carving came to be and what kind of tree that is and all this kind of stories that I hadn't considered, which gave me better insight into the history, the textual, kind of the cultural aspects of everyday life um, that would not have been possible in more sedentary, sit-down kinds of interviews. That's uh, that's really wonderful. And every little anecdote that you have about your fieldwork is, is really making me reminisce about the fieldwork that I've done, but also really excited about the next uh, legs of fieldwork that I will be doing. And I'll certainly be uh, hopefully following in uh, in your in your footsteps in and the way that you've experimented with a lot of uh, these tools uh, to ultimately arrive at the um, the sort of the best way to to interpret a lot of what's happening um, around you and and on the the topic of, of interpretation there's a brief passage in your book that I thought was really interesting and you talk about the potential pitfalls of maybe doing too much uh, interpretation and that 
we can, as you put it, uh, possibly romanticize or read too much into what might otherwise be ordinary behaviors and render them necessarily um, conscious. I think this is extremely valuable. And I think um, we need to be a lot more um, honest about the these possible epistemological tensions in the way uh, we approach people's lives. Um, as, as a grad student myself, I'm of course, thought to think through and honor my epistemological commitments throughout the research process, from conceptualization to writing and, and ultimately publishing. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about how these tensions, or let's say realizations, as to not use a negatively charged term for what is otherwise a regular intellectual exercise, uh, mm -hmm. built up through the process of, of your research and what it means for you, for, for your research and for this book um, and your scholarship more generally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, this notion of interpretation, I, it was uh, something that I grappled with throughout my research. And I think for for any critical scholars that is justice or does justice oriented, justice centered work, really want to see kind of this you know, uh, even even in, in like, you know, agrarian studies and political ecology and gender studies, we want to see like this grassroots transformation resistance um, that subverts dominant power relations. And you hope to see that. Um, but oftentimes that might not be the case. You know, people may not have the means or the time or the energy or whatever to get into the front lines and do this kind of the the kind of the classic activist work. Um, and I, as I talk about in the book and other, as other scholars have also written about, much of what counts as resistance is sometimes adaptation, right? They're adap adapting, coping with the kind of situations that they've found themselves in um, through everyday or maybe more mundane quotidian ways. And, and I think that also came up in the case of the, the litigation that the, the elders engaged in because other observers often looking at that legal uh, suit that these villagers brought, they were like, okay, this is like a very important case because these are powerless people bringing this you know, legal case against powerful actors. And which is true, it is, is not negligible that they did this, but it also um, uh, conceal the kind of power dynamics that goes into who gets to participate in these uh, legal actions and who gets left out and who is sponsoring them and what kind of stories get told and what kind of stories do not to get told in the courtroom. And so thinking more critically about what we mean by, you know, resistance, um, adaptation, or transformation or sub subverse, subversion, I think that's quite important, um, while not losing sight of the importance of understanding and attending to subaltern agency as a form of, 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 of social change. Mm -hmm. A lot of a lot of the the processes that go into meaning making and what it means for something to have meaning are are very complex and contested in, in your book. And of course, in the, in the center of this controversy is the question of of land. Mm -hmm. um, so in in the book, you discuss um, how land and people's lives are mutually co-constitutive in a way that makes its um, 
physical and, and social boundaries exceedingly difficult to delineate. Um, so the question of land and what kind of meaning it holds, and I think it's still something that is massively under under theorized. So in your in your book, land is a tangible thing, yes, but you argue that it extends beyond its significance as a means of production. It's also indispensable for social and cultural reproduction. Uh, mm -hmm. I particularly enjoyed the passage on the coming of age ceremonies for young girls and how land is an integral part of constructing uh, local ideas about womanhood, fertility, and, and sexuality. Um, so the way people practice living on the land ultimately did not cohere with the technical and investment-centric approach of the um, government of, of Tanzania and its, its foreign investors. Um, in what other ways was land um, eligible to the eco-energy project? Yeah, and in the book, I, I intentionally use uh, the word landscape um, because I think oftentimes in agrarian studies and rural studies, um, land has often been the central primary uh, entry point for investigation, as we often talk about enclosure of land. But in the book, I really want to think about the enclosure of landscapes as um, including both human and non-human elements, not just land, but as interconnection with water and forests and trees and floods and weeds and all these other non-human elements, non-human natures that are quite central to people's material um, and social and cultural lives. And you know, thinking about the landscape it also helps us to understand that these the what we call landed boundaries are all quite permeable and and the boundaries are also permeable and they're also characterized by often long-standing and often unresolved conflicts over resource access and controls. Um, so I, I found it more generative to think with the concept of landscape. Um, and the and your question about what aspects of land and then the life that eluded capture perhaps by the Ecoenergy Project is um, one of the ways that the company talked about um, land in relationship with water was often through this idea of irrigation, right? So we need this land in this riverine landscape um, because we can draw the water for um, irrigation and. Um, people's relationship to water. I mean, the, the the northern part of the project site is where most of the irrigation facilities was going to be situated. And the northern part of the site is also where the floodplains are. And that's where histories of floodplain agriculture is practiced. And so for people, floods, flooding is an annual event, an annual kind of also celebration because it allows them to grow crops and, you know, rice, for instance, introduce rice to the crop mix they hadn't been able to do before. And so for people, you know, flooding and annual inundation of the floodplains is something that's quite integral to their life and cultural and agroecological systems. But for the company, for instance, it was a nuisance. It was a disturbance that needed to be controlled. So they had all this plan for how to re-engineer the, the course of the river so that it would not flood, right? And so which would have significant implications for people's farming livelihoods um, and the histories of how they've organized um, agriculture across the, the floodplains. A lot of the effort that went into, um, as you say, re-engineering a lot of the ways um, land is, is governed um, ultimately 
maybe did not pan out because as we know, at the end of the book, um, the eco energy project did not go through and uh, the land was uh, transferred back to, to the state. And uh, the last thing we know, um, maybe spoiler alert to the listeners is that the land deal still lives on, not only in the everyday lives of, of the men and women living on the land, but also in an entirely separate sphere which is that of international law. So now we have moved on to a bitter arbitration claim against the government of, of Tanzania. I, I have to say, um, I was not at all surprised that the men and women whose lives were altered uh, beyond change to the, due to the project were not consulted and were made entirely unaware of the arbitration initiated by, by the investors. Um, two questions about this. Um, the first, what, what are the implications of such a case within and beyond Tanzania? And do we have any new updates? Sure. Right. So, um... The land deal initiated back in 2006, it, the government canceled the land deal in 2016, which led to the investor taking um, the case and filing a arbitration case with the International Center for Settlements and Investment Disputes, um, which is housed within the World Bank. And the way that ICSID and international arbitration operates is based on bilateral investment treaties. So Tanzania and Sweden, the, the place of origin of the investor, they have bilateral investment treaties. And the investor was ultimately arguing that the government's decision to revoke their land title goes against the bilateral investment treaty between the United Republic of Tanzania and the Kingdom of Sweden. And by nature, the international arbitration is essentially a dispute settlement mechanism between the state and the foreign investor. And so there is absolutely no room for local communities to be involved. Um, but the way that uh, it was interesting, I did talk about it in the book. I first um, learned about the arbitration case because I had received an email from the corporate executive saying, hey, like we are doing this. I want you to read this um, white paper that we wrote about it. And in his in his email in the email exchange, he was saying, you know, I had asked a question about to the extent that people are involved, and he said, well, you know, the we're doing this for the benefit of the people. Um, so that my interpretation is that so that this doesn't happen again in the future, and that people will benefit um, for a project like this in the future through, you know, employment or compensation for land loss and et cetera. But it is not required, nor is it, you know, I don't, I don't know if investors, I doubt that investors, if they are compensated for, um, or if they win the arbitration case, I would in some ways distribute that compensation award to the local community. So it's a system that is fundamentally flawed and really biased towards um, global investors and um, and only the investors who have the means and power and the finances and the connections can actually bring such cases to um, the International Arbitration Center. So it's a fundamentally flawed system, and others have also written about this. And and uh, and what was interesting is this was, I think, one of the first arbitration cases against the Tanzanian government Um that is arbitration case brought by an investor that had been wrapped up in the global land grabbing debate. 
And since this arbitration, the government had changed its national laws to prevent uh, foreign investors to resorting to arbitration because it is very costly for the Tanzanian government. It's upwards of millions of dollars invested in this thing. And this means that when governments spend millions of dollars to respond to these kind of cases, that's the kind of money that would benefit people, right? If that money could be going into social protection, welfare programs, more investment in small-scale farming, you know, that kind of investment is is lost because the government now has to use that money to fight the investor in this international arbitration center. So it's structurally um, unequal in so many ways. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really curious if you had a conversation with your interlocutors at some point recently or after the news about the arbitration came out. How do they feel about this? Are they feeling ambivalent? Are they siding with one party or the other? Is there some consensus? It was more, I went back last year actually, um, and you know, there's a sense of resignation. They're like, oh, of course, you know, it's a sense of, I have it in the book. Um, there's a refrain that people often talked about in the states to the socialist era to this the refrain of, oh, the government is government. Um, and it's like no surprise that the government would, you know, do its own thing and leave us out. So there was a sense of, I don't think they were as an element of, I mean, there was a little bit of element of surprise, but it wasn't that people, people were not entirely surprised. That's what I want to say that, um, I think people were so oppressed, um, so used to being oppressed and so used to being marginalized that it was like, oh, it's another, you know, manifestations of us being excluded and abandoned by the state. Eugene, thank you so, so much for speaking with me about your book, uh, Sweet Deal, Bitter Landscape, Gender Politics and Liminality in Tanzania's New Enclosures. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the book is open access, right? It is, yeah. So you can download a free PDF copy um, at the Cornell University Press website. Fantastic. I, I really enjoyed reading your book. Again, it's it's so wonderful and I, it's such an important contribution. Um, and this conversation has been extremely insightful and I really look forward to reading more of your work. Would you like to add anything else before we uh, get off the air as to speak? <laughs> no, but thank you so much for having me and I really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks again. Absolutely.